And now our feature presentation, Imitating Art with Don and Chuck. Hey, welcome to Imitating Art. I'm Chuck. I'm Don. Here at Imitating Art, we like to review and dissect movies, see what life lessons they might have worth learning. I'd like to point out Don has a little bit of broccoli in his teeth. Uh, I'm sure you can hear it. I'm sure you heard that already, though, yeah. Uh, this week, we're talking about uh, Moonlight, so hopefully no one watched La La Land in preparation for this episode. Because if so, you're going to be sorely disappointed or surprised, happy. You should watch Moonlight instead. Just the easy joke because of the, uh, the, the kerfuffle. Oscars. There was a kerfuffle? Yeah, yeah. You remember when that happened? I remember there being an Oscars something. So, uh, at the Oscars... But I don't care enough about that. <laughs> uh, it came time to announce Best Picture, and they handed Warren Beatty the card, and he looked at it, looked confused, handed it to, I want to say, Annette Benning, maybe? I can't remember who it was. Faye, Faye. Annette Benning Was this in, was, were these Oscars in 1999? <laughs> so she was like, oh, it was La La Land. And then the people from La La Land came up and started congratulating each other, and before they could start giving a speech, you see some stagehand come on. And hand another card to like Warren Beatty, and he's like, "Nope, uh, actually, the winner was Moonlight." I vaguely remember they that they just handed him the wrong card because La La Land had one for like yeah. you know costumes or something, and they handed them that card, uh, which is why like Warren Beatty saw the category, and that's why he got confused and handed the card off because he wasn't sure what was going on. And the winner is the wickedly talented La La Light. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That one's more fun, and also, hey, Riddle Riddle references it yes. all the time, so I think of it all the time. JPC's favorite movie is John Travolta mispronouncing Adele Dazeem. <laughs> anyway, on this podcast, we're going to talk about Moonlight, <laughs> the 2016 Yes, not film. the 2007 TV series, which also popped up when I searched for where to watch it, which I think is about and a I'm vampire sure. detective, I want to say. Never watched it. A vampire detective? That hasn't been done since... 1994. Uh, man, this is going to be a tangential episode. It is. It? I have very few notes. <laughs> and also, uh, one of the things I said to uh, Alex afterward is, like, I do think it's a very good movie, but it's almost too subtle. It often feels like nothing's happening, even though a lot happens. And as much as I like pulling apart story, it's the kind of movie where you kind of have to pull it apart to get any sort of meaning from it, because it, yeah. it doesn't tell the audience... Anything, it, yeah, it just kind of gives you the story, which is good, uh, which is why yeah, like one that. best picture. But um, you, you need to put in the work to, to get anything from it, other than the, the great performances. Speaking of work, I am going to uh, take a stab at a quick, concise synopsis of what this movie is Are you about. sure? Because, you know, I'm thinking back to our Creep episode. But, but that's why I'm going to make an attempt. <laughs> all right, all right <laughs> let's give it a try. Synopsis. All right, so Moonlight is a movie that takes place in three chapters over the course of the life of Chiron, uh, also known as Little or Black, uh, in each of these chapters. Um, the, it starts off when he's a young boy. Uh, he has a mother who is clearly kind of absent and on drugs, and he meets uh, a, a man, Juan, who kind of takes him in, starts to shape his life slightly. He's a little bit smaller than the rest of the kids, which I assume is why he gets the name Little. He is being bullied by the kids being called a faggot, being called gay, um, you know, just being pushed around by these kids. Um, we move into his, like, into his teenage life, and you see that not much has changed for him. You know, he's he's a little more kind of battle-worn, but he is still being bullied. He's still an outcast. He still hasn't found his place in high school. He doesn't have, like, a crew. He doesn't have a family support system he's kind of just on his own and he's figuring things out so things start to happen to him in high school he's kind of, you know kind of figuring out his sexuality and figuring out who he is and accepting himself but he's still being bullied and in a case where he kind of has had enough and snaps he is presumably ex expelled from school and taken to jail because he attacks one of the bullies that attacked him with a then, chair with a chair yeah <laughs> And then we cut to his later life, you know, it's a very abrupt cut to his, you know, later life where he's kind of like become hardened and he's kind of gotten into the drug trade that he 
despised as a kid for turning his mom into what his mom became. And you just kind of, they don't dwell on that too much, which I appreciate. They just, you, you know that he's in the life. And then it, the, the third chapter of the movie is basically him reconnecting with Kevin, who he was his first and only sexual experience as a teenager. And there's this kind of just like sweet reconnection and him just realizing that he's still trying to figure out who he is and he meets back up with Kevin and they have this reminiscence and it's just like a very sweet kind of wrap up ending. But again, like you said, you have to work, you got to do a little digging to figure out what this whole arc means from, from being a, a child to an adult and figuring out all that stuff that happens in between. Yeah, because it's very quiet. Chiron, as, as a character, never really says what he's feeling because he's so uncomfortable with himself and, and who he is. Much like with people in, in real life, it's a very realistic movie, uh, you have to kind of figure out what's actually going on beneath the surface by what he's kind of doing and and the actor's performance. Because, as Kevin points out towards the end of the movie, you can't really get more than three words out of him as a character at a time. Yeah. He's just kind of uh, this enigma. And the, the whole movie is, you know, trying to give you enough pieces to see what the bigger picture of him as, as a person might be. Yeah. And, I mean, there's some, there's there's a lot going on, really. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in his head uh, with emotional trauma and physical trauma, a lot of stuff. And, you know, just figuring out who he is. Um, and Juan is the first person who seems to like just accept him and be okay with him and just, you know, kind of treat him like a human instead of, you know, his mom is on drugs and just kind of seemingly ashamed of him. And just like, I don't know if that's just part of her being kind of messed up or or what but it seems like she's like kind of putting him down and he just does not have a happy home life um and it seems like there's random men there and she has drugs out on the table and everything so he was happy to like be taken in by juan that day and (laughs) just kind of get to spend time in like a quiet happy home with 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 juan and Teresa. yeah but when juan i was gonna say but when juan brought him back to his mother after taking care of him for the night and making sure he had a safe place to sleep and eat and everything, you know, the mom pulls him away and like shuts the door on him. Like, and I, my first assumption was like, okay, well she must just know he's like a drug dealer. So he's, she's being very protective of him. But then later you learn that she's, you know, basically buying from him. (laughs) So there's a strange like hypocrisy on both sides of those two characters, like looking out for this boy in this, in this, in a similar seemingly in a similar way right there at that doorway. But then you realize that they're, you know, the mom is doing so much more damage than the drug dealer is. His mom has a very interesting arc over the the three chapters as well. Because at first it seems like she kind of wants to be there for him, but kind of can't be through work and then through, you know, her her boyfriends and, and the drugs. Right. But she's at least aware that she's not doing a good enough job, which is why it's so offensive to her that uh, Juan is starting to not even really raise him, just just trying to offer him some guidance and, and try to be a, a figure of some sort of stability, kind of teach him a little bit about life. Yeah. You know, I, I think she recognizes her failings as a parent and, and hates seeing someone step in to, to take over that s- spot. But then, you know, by right. the time Sharon becomes a teenager, she's not even trying anymore. She's just kind of using him and sort of emotionally abusing him. Definitely. Uh, when he's a teen, yeah. Yeah, because her, her addiction has grown worse and stronger by the time he's an adult. And she's in, I, I couldn't tell if that was a, a prison or like a rehab facility. It seems like it was like a voluntary rehab facility because she said she's like choosing to stay to help other people. Yeah. Where she's kind of trying to get her stuff together and find a new connection with Sharon. But at this point, he, you know, he's still too quiet and shy and uncomfortable with himself. And, and he makes that a little tough. But he he at least makes the effort. He goes to see her. He, you know, he listens to her when she talks. He does go to see her. But yeah, there's that moment where he's like, 
seriously, you're telling me to stop dealing drugs? Like, yeah. And, uh, especially since it, it's gotta be hard for her too. Cause by the end he's basically become Juan, right? He right. dresses like him. He wears the earrings. Alex, Alex pointed out, oh, those are the same earrings that Mahershala Ali was wearing at the beginning. Hmm. Uh, I didn't notice he, that, but I mean the car, obviously the car, he likes to fuck with people now, uh, just to kind of play the little mind game of making them recount the money, which is a little bit of how, you know, Juan, when he was trying to get Sharon to talk when he was little, like he acted like he was taking his food away from him. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, he, he's basically learned everything he knows about drug dealing from imitating Juan. There's always a lot going on in these scenes, even if they're not saying it. Yeah, for sure. And for the record, <clears throat> I will say, fuck bullies, uh, and yes. bullying sucks. And like, especially when you see the little kids, like when in the first chapter, they're so young and like, just like seeing them bully each other, just really kind of, it was, it just reminded me of how shitty kids are and how shitty kids can be. And, and I'm not talking about this from a substitute teacher's perspective, which I do have as well. And yes, they are shitty and they're shitty to each other and they're shitty to teachers. Um, and that hasn't changed. It's probably gotten worse. Uh, but when I was in elementary school, like I was bullied a lot and I fucking hated it. Like I hated going to school sometimes, you know, that was such a shitty feeling to like not want to go to a school. Cause I actually really liked school and like feeling like I was not comfortable in a classroom because people are, you know, being shitty to you. That's just a horrible feeling. And then, you know, and, the, and I will, and I can, I can say, you know, you, you grow up feeling like you're, you, you don't feel right in a situation in a classroom. And that's like, it's not a good, you know, and you know, there's not really a good way for the school to handle it, or they didn't choose a good way to handle it. You know, they give you a, a day of school if you have a fight, whether you started the fight, ended the fight, didn't participate in the fight. If they catch you being hit, they will suspend both of you. That's their solution. So there's no good solution for it. So like even in the class where the 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 one kid was like calling out Sharon in the second chapter and he was just saying these horrible things to him, <clears throat> then he the teacher was like, come on, cut that out. You know, like instead of immediately removing him, or actually giving him some consequences. He was like, all right, stop telling him, you know, Chiron needs a tampon or whatever he had said. He, did, he it, it took a lot before he finally removed him from the class, you know. And mm-hmm. probably he's going to get a talking to at the principal's office and then go back to class. Nothing's going to happen to that kid, you know. <laughs> and that's right. the thing. There's no consequences for the perpetrators in these situations. So what do you do, you know? just It just sucks. Bullying sucks. I guess you wait until another kid hits them over the head with a chair. Yeah, and then the victim gets to go to jail. Yes. Yeah, great. <laughs> seems I mean, like fuck a good system. And, and, like a good system. And what I do like about that, though, is that kid is not the one who actually hit Sharon. So, right. as, as Don pointed out, uh, Sharon's first real sexual encounter, exploration of his sexuality... Uh, was with his friend Kevin, who he's known, you know, since uh, he was little. Right. And and who also is, it's a little unclear if Kevin's actually gay or if he's just kind of exploring what his boundaries might be. But to have this shared moment, and it's obviously very meaningful to uh, Sharon. And then this asshole kid who, I don't even know the character's name. I don't even uh, know if they gave him a name. Get gets uh, Kevin to play like the knockdown stay down game where he just picks someone for Kevin to hit and knock down and he picks your own. Of course. <laughs> so, yeah. And which is one thing I do like about the scene, other than it's very heartbreaking because obviously Kevin doesn't want to do it, but he is still trying to hide parts of himself or, or trying to be someone that he thinks he needs to be. And uh, he's probably figured, he probably figures if he doesn't hit him, then he's going to be the one getting knocked to the ground and kicked you know yeah yeah so it's like self-preservation as well and then like they'll they'll just both be getting beat up you know yeah uh so he hits your own and expects him to just stay down but i really like that you know throughout the entire movie we, we kind of see this little look of defiance in Sharon, and like we want him to start standing up for himself and then finally when it's someone who's really hurt him emotionally who who hits him 
that's when the anger and defiance really comes out and he keeps standing up chin high not even fighting back yeah just almost almost to say i'm I know this is hurting you, so you're gonna. If you want to hit me, you're gonna have to keep torturing yourself. Right, and that, that's what it felt like to me, anyway. Definitely, definitely. Every every time he stood up and looked him in the eye and was like, "Yep," and he kept, you know, Kevin kept saying, "Stay down," mm-hmm. but he kept standing right back up and looking him in the face and saying, "Yeah, you know what? If you want to keep hurting me, you're gonna, you know, I want you to look at me in the face while you're hurting me." Yeah. So, so that's the torture he gave Kevin, but the, to the asshole kid, uh, he gave him, you know, a chair to the to the back and yeah and man that head. scene <laughs> that scene where he's walking in like i loved i loved that scene Me like, too. There, he's oh. walking in with such purpose through the halls of the school yeah a purpose he doesn't usually have as a character yeah um, yeah that's to- total change in demeanor for sure yeah i i had seen the movie before but i forget i had forgotten what he did to to the kid but mm-hmm. i was like you know, at this point, I'm ready for him to just go and punch the kid in the fucking face or something. Like, the dude's such yeah. an asshole. He deserves something. And it's not like I, I don't usually advocate for violence, but I understand where if you're in a situation where nobody's doing anything to help, yeah, the, the anger is going to turn into violence. And if it's going to happen, then the asshole at least needs to get a fist to the face, you know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, bullying, bullying radicalizes people. Like, it's like people who are tortured in Guantanamo that, you know, that are innocent, you know, it's like, yeah, you just created yourself some more terrorists. What do you think is going to happen? Of course, somebody who gets bullied constantly and sees no consequences on the other side is going to break eventually. And like that building anger finally just, you know, boiled over and he had to do something. And that was, you know, he got it in his mind. This is what he was going to do. And that's what he did. You know, the diplomatic Mm -hmm. solution clearly was not working. So... (laughs) Yeah. He turned to, he turned to violence. Yeah, and then, you know, and then what happens to him? He's learned that this is the only way to deal with the problems in life because I mean, we should say that Juan passed away. We don't actually right. see it happen, but in between chapters 1 and 2, Juan dies and he would probably have some actual advice. Uh yep. but but without that guidance, yeah. without a parental figure helping or guiding him. Yeah, uh all he can do is be angry and i mean Teresa is great and sweet and and helpful but she can't but she can't talk to him the way that uh juan does so yeah without him it just turns into violence and then again learning the lesson of oh this is what like this is what i have to do for people to not fuck with me uh which is why by the time we find him when he's around 30 or so he's like the jacked hard is how he likes to describe himself too yeah powerhouse of a human who is has cultivated power for himself and uses it to make money and fuck with people totally the thing i love about juan is that he is such like a gentle character and he's compassionate in that he listens and he doesn't preach he you know like for example when they were sitting at the kitchen table and having the conversation you know total honesty of, do you, you know, my mom's on drugs, right? Yes. Don't you sell drugs? Yes. Like mm-hmm. it's it, total honesty. And like, you could see the pain in Juan when he was like actually having to admit that to him. Cause he knows he's, he knows he's letting this kid down that looks up to him so much. So mm-hmm. I just love, but I love the way they portrayed that character and subsequently, uh, Chiron, you know, later in the movie when he's, when he's older, like both these hard, guys but they're both tender humans you know and like they're just port- being portrayed as like they're they're putting out that stereotype of like the ex-con in chiron ex-con drug dealer wearing a grill the mm-hmm. person that you normally like stereotype in a movie and put them in there as the drug dealer they turn you know they show the human behind all of that facade and i love that yeah, I mean, I guess you you could get the sense if you wanted that it's it's not a life Juan ever wanted for himself, and to him it's just a job, uh, you know. Like, much like Sharon, he's different with his dealers, you know, when he's at work than he is when he comes at home to to Teresa and and Sharon. So yeah, e- even though I feel like sometimes it feels like a little bit of a trope to have like the drug dealer with the heart of gold, it's kind of what 
Sharon needs in his life is that sweetness, but he also needs the reality of the world. Uh, so it's a good character to have as his, like, guide character. But then, you know, by the end, it's like he's taken the wrong lessons of it because he's lost that guidance. Uh, Agreed. I was thinking, I already mentioned the table scene, but, like, at that point where Little gets up and walks away from the table after Juan admits that to him, it's like you see the defeat <laughs> in his face where he's like, I thought I had somebody who I could trust. He doesn't have a mom that he can trust. You know, he doesn't have this guy that he was like starting to feel connected to it disappoints him as well. But it's also like in an, in connection with his mom that he knows like this is what's making his mom the way she is. So, yeah, I mean, honesty hurts there in that situation, but it's better than the alternative. Yeah, well, he's also too young to kind of understand what's actually going on, uh, and and that the the sort of advice and guidance he's getting from Juan is actually useful, just despite the fact that he's technically ruining people's lives by being a drug dealer, and that that doesn't mean that there's no reason for. Uh, Sharon to, to not trust him, uh, even though he's basically destroying his home life. So it is like this gray area of Juan knows that Sharon deserves a better home life, but he's not going to stop selling drugs to Sharon's mom. And they like they even have that argument, uh, the two the two of them when when Sharon's not around. Of uh, she's like, don't even use the argument of you're just going to get it from somewhere else because I'm not. I'm getting it from you. Yeah, and in that scene, like, it's funny because you see the conflicted feelings on Juan's face Mm -hmm. when he's, like, pulls her out of the car and says, like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you, you know, why are you using when you have a kid at home? And she's like, you know, he's judging her. And it's like, well, it's easy to judge someone in that situation, even if you're the one that's actually providing them with the drugs. And that's, like, kind of your job, (laughs) your chosen profession. And it's like, yeah, that was, it was very well acted for one thing. Like the Juan, it was all in his face. Like you could just see it. He didn't even say anything. It was just like watching it wash over him as he was realizing, you know, the hypocrisy in what he was saying. Yeah. Well, when you hire Mahershala Ali, you, you get a good performance. Sure. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. I can't remember if he won. He definitely stole the show for sure. Yes. Um, but yeah, and and just to point out one one more thing in the early scene, there was the scene where uh, he boiled uh, little boils water for a warm bath, and that kind of really shows you like how his home life is. And <laughs> he's like just kind of like trying to drown out the world by like just having that moment of peace of like having a hot bath, and he has to boil water on the stove to be able to to have that, and. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd see why he'd want to be in a place like like uh, Juan and Teresa's where it's like safe, comfortable and a little more upscale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it It's a nice house. <laughs> you know, there's so many good scenes with the two the two of them and uh, not the least of which is the scene where they're sitting at the beach and he tells him about, uh, the you know, sitting in the moonlight and the Cuban woman telling him that black boys look blue in the moonlight and he asked him if his name's Blue, and that's when he gets to you know give him the full advice <laughs> that you got to decide who you're, for yourself who you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And when they said, for some reason, that made me think of like black and blue. Of like, there's probably I don't know if there was anything to that or just the fact that like black people in America are often like beat up in one way or another, whether it's physically or psychologically. And they're bo- very much both in this movie. So I didn't know if there was some connection to that. And like the emotional or physical bruises that, that the, you know, black people have after dealing with all this kind of stuff. There could be, as I've said about other movies that we've talked about, this is the kind of movie where not a lot is happening by accident. Right. So, uh, it's very possible, but whether course, it was or not, like this movie definitely, uh, alludes to, <laughs> to that kind of like, long-term scarring that occurs, long-term bruising that, that occurs to, to people in these situations. 
Yeah, I, I was also going to say, but it's also the kind of movie that's layered enough that uh, an accident like that can happen and still make sense. Yeah, and it doesn't, and yeah, and it's kind of nice where it would, it make, in a movie that's making you look for stuff like that as well. The only other thing I had for the first chapter um, was the part where all the boys are in, like, the room comparing penises and, like, kind of just being like, there's, like, that natural, There, all these kids are, you know, coming into the age where they're curious about their sexuality and their bodies. And it's just an interesting kind of quick scene that happens where they're all just kind of talking about it. Nothing really happens. They just talk about it and then they move on. Um, But it's an interesting time where like they're all interested in their bodies and their sexuality, but then they're still pushing this one person away for seemingly thinking that he has different, you know, he is uh, different than them in some way. And I don't know, it's, it's like they're all there. I think that scene was showing that they're all the same. They're all curious and they're all starting off the same with the same curiosities. But, you know, some people, any, any person that grows up just a little bit different or is a little bit different is going to be the one that gets singled out and ridiculed. Right. Uh, and it's also just a, an uncomfortable moment for Sharon because, sure. you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really know anything about himself because he hasn't been through enough life to really explore it. But yeah, I, I think he does know that he feels differently than the other boys and that he doesn't, or at least he assumes, and that he doesn't want a situation like this to, to make them find out. Right. Uh, also, in, in the first chapter, I want to say uh, Kevin is trying to teach Sharon that he needs to beat people up. Stand and up for so, himself, yeah. Yes, but also, it seems like knowing that Kevin is also interested in Sharon, I think it's one of those playful moments where he's almost like saying, "Let's play this game just so we can touch each other." Right. <laughs> uh, uh, because then you know, there's like this little r- wrestling match, and the aftermath is almost filmed like the end of sex scenes in, in movies are where they're like out of breath and and looking at each other. Yeah. And I don't think it's intimating an actual sexual relationship between two kids. No. But uh, I think it's intimating like the potential for it in the future or foreshadowing it. Foreshadowing it, but yes, but also probably uh, indicating that even if somebody hasn't fully realized that they're gay, they know, you know, their, their bodies know at some point, you know, they feel this connection when they're young, you know, it's like these little crushes, these little things, these games you play where you like, you know, hit your crush or whatever, whatever that Mm -hmm. thing is, because you don't know how to express your feelings. And they're like these little intimations of what is to come, but those feelings, you know, they're already there below the surface and they're just kind of like starting to bubble up now. Yeah. And, and actually, since you pointed that out, I, I was trying to think of the structure of this movie and I, realize that it's a little bit like not growing up but like growing backwards because by splitting it up into three the three chapters at the points in life that it is it it starts off with Sharon just being who he is and he doesn't fully understand it uh but he is just who he is and he knows that other people don't really like it and he doesn't understand that either but he's not like, he's uncomfortable, but he's not pretending to be someone else. Right. And then in the middle, he's kind of exploring who he is. He's trying to understand who he is, but he's also starting to hide who he is. And starts learning that maybe he should pretend to be someone else. So by the third chapter, you know, it's adulthood. So you are either become the realization of who you are or the rejection of who you are. And he right. has become the rejection. Uh, so again, he's gone from just being who he is to completely rejecting who he is, yeah. uh, in, in, in the structure. And so, yeah, it felt like a backwards growing up to me of yeah, the way growing sense. up is supposed to be anyway. Sure. Uh, and unfortunately that's just kind of how it comes, how it comes when you're not accepted or you're pushed away or bullied or whatever. And in the second chapter, Kevin gets to hit his crush <laughs> you know he gets to be yeah he hits him quite literally and very hard um but not you know you could see the reluctance on his face when he does that um but anyway but 
in the second scene, in the second uh, chapter, also they, yeah, that that's when the sexual encounter thing encounter happens on the beach, where they are kind of just there. They smoke together, and then they sit there together, and they kind of hold each other, and then things start to happen. And this is after Chiron admits to like crying and, be, and just he, you know he's vulnerable and he's like, yeah, I cry all the time, and I don't even know why sometimes, or I think I'm going to turn into you know turn into water and slide into <laughs> slide into the ocean or something. Mm-hmm. And like that vulnerability emotionally leads to a physical, you know, encounter that he'd never had before. And he, you know, probably didn't expect. Yeah, not at all. He he seemed to not expect it at all, but he was very happy afterwards, uh, understandably, as, as most people are, especially because it seemed probably to him, it was a solidification that he kind of knows who he is now. And there's someone else like him who he can share it with, but then that ends up being short-lived. Right. And usually, I don't, I don't usually take this long into the movie to point out what I loved about the cinematography, but I really loved the cinematography of this movie. Like in so many ways, the way that they, the way that they use the camera, the way that the focus was set and pulled from out of focus to in focus and the color grading of this movie is fantastic. And like, First of all, they have those spinning cameras. Like the first scene where you see Juan outside the, like the stash house or whatever, where the guy is selling, mm-hmm. just constant spinning. Like the whole scene, the camera is going around those two actors while they're talking, and like and they repeat that a few times. But they also have somewhere like you're coming at this scene out of focus, and then you zoom in, and then one, then you come into focus on the characters. And there's just, I'm sure there's more layers there if I were to watch it again and try to pull that apart, but. Mm-hmm. I really loved what they were doing with that. And then each chapter kind of had its own unique color grading. Um, like the the Florida setting, the early one was, you know, more, a, a little warmer. And then the mm-hmm. second one was more kind of blue. Mm-hmm. And then Atlanta was warm again. So again, I haven't really dug into what those mean, but, but I just love like watching it change. Yeah. But it was a lot darker too. So like there, right. there was a lot more brightness in, in chapter one than there was in chapter three. Right. Uh, which mostly took place in one night where it was just nice and dark mm-hmm. and everything was subdued. But I had to point that out because it was very, very well done. And, and like the, the focus was so sharp. They used so much like so much like shallow depth of field, but in a different way, like a sharper way than a lot of movies. Like a lot of movies will have this depth of field where the background's entirely out of focus and you're just completely focused on the character, which they still use in this movie, but there's like a little bit of softness still in the background. So you can still kind of make everything out and it's not completely focused yet. There's, there's almost an outline. It, it might, it, and I think it's just the way that it was lit. It was lit in such a way. And since they make a point to point out how, light interacts with black skin from the moon. I think that it's intentionally done in such a stark way that these characters stand out from their background. And like, but I think there was a a bit of a saturation to the background as well that kind of made it feel a little bit different. So I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, but I just loved the way it looked. Yeah. I wish I could notice stuff like that more often, but (laughs) I don't know a thing about cinematography. (laughs) Another thing I noticed that was kind of repeated uh, was, and I don't know if this was an intentional repeat, but it's something that I thought maybe was uh, uh, intentional, was that walk to the restaurant. Uh, when the older Sharon was walking to the restaurant in the end to meet Kevin, it felt like such a long walk from his car to the restaurant and the camera stuck, stayed with him the whole time until he walked into that door and the bell rang. And, I, and that kind of mirrored to me like the scene where he was walking through the hallways in the school to get to the, mm. you know, to finally attack his bully. So this is like almost like he's walking down, you know, he's taken such a, a long time. He knows what he's doing with determination, but he's walking in there just like face his demons that have been with him forever. So I don't know if that was an intentional thing or not, but it, it felt like it, uh, there was, there was intention behind it because of how long they stayed with him. It very well could be because movies don't generally tend to, have a shot where nothing happens unless they need it to for one reason or another. Right. Well, it definitely <laughs> builds the the suspense or like the tension in the scene because you like you can tell like there's a little bit of you know he's he's made the decision to drive to Miami and then go see Kevin again. But 
he, there's probably still a part of him that's like a little bit reluctant to it, but he like oh, has sure. this momentum and he just has to keep going. So he just walks, he just marches forward and deals with his deals with the past. Yeah. I mean, the, the call from Kevin seemed to sort of rock his world and he seemed uncomfortable by it at first, but then he had a wet dream. Uh, right. Again, just confused about what he should do. And then, but this Sharon makes decisions. So he just makes the, the decision to go. Man, that I gotta say though, like even that scene, like that confusion on his face of like, it's like it's sad in a way. It's like there's this repression or like regression. I don't know, this stunted, stuntedness of this character that has like grown up, but still doesn't know himself or doesn't Mm -hmm. hasn't been able to accept himself or understand himself to the point where he's like, I just have to go, I have to go deal with this finally. Like I have to face all this stuff. And then he goes to see Kevin and yeah. And they have such a great Frank conversation and like, there's no, there's no anger. There's no pointing of fingers. There's just this like open, honest conversation like they had on the beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, again, the, the way Sharon talks to his dealer is not really the Sharon who he was when he was a kid, but as soon as he gets back around Kevin, yeah. He just stops talking so much, just starts nodding. You know, Kevin's like, oh, you're doing the nodding thing again. You haven't changed at all, have you? Yeah, and, and it turns out Kevin had gone to, to jail as well and had gotten out, and he's on parole, and he has he has a kid. Uh, I, I noted a quote that Kevin said. He said, I never did what I wanted. It was all I could do to do what I thought I should do. Mm-hmm. And, like, that, I feel like that kind of sums up how people end up in their thirties or beyond without any idea who they really are, because they're so busy trying to do what they think they need to do. (laughs) They never get a chance to like follow who they really are or figure out what, you know, figure out what they're doing. This this is straying more into lessons than I thought, but I didn't intend it to. It's kind of tough to do it with a movie like this. Yeah. Without the lessons popping up. But I find that interesting that they, you know, that he said that where it's like, well, I never really, I never, never really got to be himself. He never got to be him. He never got to explore who he might be or what he could, what he wants to do because he's too busy trying to be who everybody else thinks he should be. Yeah. And actually, now that you pointed out, it's, it's interesting because in jail, Kevin figured out what he wanted to do. They put him on, you know, the food line. Hmm. And so he started cooking in jail and then he got out of jail and decided that's what he wanted to do. So he works at this restaurant. Uh, Whereas in Sharon's case, he went to jail and met a drug dealer who, once he got out of the street, took him under his wing and got him to start selling. So two wildly different uh, outcomes. (laughs) Yeah. And and again, uh, Sharon was doing what he thought he had to do. And Kevin after years of doing that, decided he didn't want to do that anymore and found what he wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like it's, it's an, uh, that actually is really interesting. Look at like what the like incarceration state could, can do like the both sides of it. Like it can quote unquote rehabilitate someone by, you know, setting them straight, AKA scaring them into staying on the straight and narrow. So they don't get, put back into that situation and, you know, taking a probably minimum wage cooking job just to make ends meet, uh, because you can't get any other kind of gig with a, a record. Mm-hmm. But then on the other side, you know, you you harden someone to the point where they're like, well, this is the only job I'm going to be able to do. Like I have a connection here that can make money. I got money in my hand. Why would I do anything else? Like wh- nobody's going to hire me for anything else because I have this like rap sheet for standing up for myself when I was 16 or whatever, however old he was. <laughs> and then he's like, well, I can make money on the street and I know it's not good and I know I'm hurting people, but they're going to get it somewhere. Mm-hmm. May I may as well have money in my pocket. The people are going to get the drugs anyway. Yep. And, and, and again, it gives him the power. He kind of always wished that he had. Yeah, uh, that's true. Even though again, it keeps him from really, understanding himself but and it's a it facade, gives him the, yeah <laughs> it, it gives him the things that he has wanted yeah just and I, and I, on both sides for both of them kevin and sharon just imagine how I, I just imagine how lonely they both must be like 
not being able to feel like they can be themselves or express themselves truly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like Kevin has come around to the point where he wants to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. both he's, of them. Yeah, he's he's basically said, I, he, like you said, it, he spent so much time doing what he thought he had to do, and he seems really happy with. Even though this is technically a crappy job, he's he would rather be doing that than you know anything illegal like he he used to be doing. And then he's the one who called Sharon. You know he 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 takes the first step. Yeah, he wanted that connection of of meeting with his past and then right. you know sharon obviously wanted that as well or else he wouldn't have shown up he wouldn't have driven from atlanta to miami for no other reason to do that if he didn't want to do that and then as you said it's just this kind of sweet night of them talking about their lives sharon does look pretty upset when he finds out that kevin has a child though but sure <laughs> and kevin once again finally gets sharon to start opening up about the way he feels about anything because Sharon doesn't do that at all. As I right. said, it makes him a hard character to know because he doesn't say anything about what he feels. But, you know, one of the last lines of dialogue is, uh, Sharon admitting you're the only man who's ever touched me and no one else has really ever touched me either before yeah. they just kind of embrace. Yeah. I love that it ends in just like a sweet embrace and like, there's like a safety there's just like a, a finally a moment of safety that he can just let himself be vulnerable and yep. like just just be who he is just be himself in the arms of someone else yep just lean his head against uh kevin's shoulders yeah it was a a very nice ending um and i think that's probably a good a good place to take a quick break and get into the lessons i agree the, the ones we haven't already talked about <laughs> yeah yeah so we'll be right back back to it yeah yeah i think we're back yeah so i know this is an audio podcast so i'm just gonna say this we're not black um <laughs> so <laughs> so um there's almost definitely some things we're missing in this category of lessons like i'm sure there's some like specific things that i don't see can't see or haven't seen i would love to know about them for sure but i feel like there's like something about the black experience we're certainly missing so (laughs) from the perspective of two white dudes (laughs) like this these are the lessons that we've come up with but i just i just wanted to point out that there are certainly things that i'm that we're missing and if you're listening i would love to hear about them and i'm sure chuck would as well (laughs) yes just a mild disclaimer uh, but I, the first, like one of the first things that I wrote down, obviously is the quote from Juan that says, you know, at some point you have to decide for yourself who you're going to be. You can't let anybody make that decision for you. And like, this is speaking to a, a formative Chiron, um, who didn't really have a role model at that point. This kind of coupled with his story about the Cuban woman saying that he looks blue in the moonlight. And, you know, Chiron's a little confused and thinks that that's his name because she wanted to call him blue. And mm-hmm. he's like, no, you, like, you can't let other people label you. You can't let, you, you know, you're not the way that other people see you. You are not the way that people describe you or think you are. You are you. And you have to like just you have to put that out there. You have to be yourself and choose to be the person that you are, and not become the person that people see. And I think that's like really displayed where they're both kind of these criminal people. You know, when they're both in their drug dealing days, whether it's, you know Juan in the first chapter or Chiron in the in the later chapter, they both, if somebody were to look at them, they'd probably say, "Well, that guy's." A drug dealer, you know, he's he's the he is the whatever. But that, that there's so much more going on behind who he is on the outside, behind the facade that he puts on to to look hard or whatever. There's so much more there, and that is kind of like what he finally lets go in the end and says, like, I just want to be held and I want to be understood. <laughs> and Kevin is the person who 
allows them to do that. Yeah. Uh, and it takes him uh, a long journey to get there because he doesn't really know who he is. And again, other than Juan, he doesn't really have any guidance. And Juan isn't portrayed as gay, so he doesn't have a whole lot of insight. But there is one scene where Sharon basically asks him, how, how will he know if he's gay? And I think it's Juan. It's either Juan or Teresa, but I think it's Juan who says, you'll know when you know. Yeah, it's Juan. Um, so, I mean, that kind of goes hand in hand with your, you, you can't really be, you, you're not who anyone else says you are, but you do have to look at yourself and, and figure it out. And, uh, or as I put it, I'm not gay, but that seems to be universally true of discovering who you are. For a while, things are confusing. Then at some point you either realize, yes, this makes sense. Or you realize, I stopped being confused a while ago because X is true. Uh, at some point, you just know. Uh, you just have to ask yourself every once in a while to, to make sure that you figured it out. Right. But, yeah, so you're not who anyone else says you are. But it is kind of up to you to figure out who you are. And it for a lot of people, it just comes naturally. So that makes sense. This is great. Yeah. Uh, uh, for... A lot of other people, society kind of makes them feel guilty about who they might be, and it becomes a little tougher uh, because yeah. you know society makes people want to reject who they are. Yeah, society, when they really family. should just yeah yeah when they really should just be saying, "Oh, this is this is who I am. I think I, or I think this is who I am. Let me try to figure this out." Some people are lucky enough for it to just make sense and not have to worry about it. Yeah, and I think. Part of that is part of that rejection from society and like that self-loathing that is instilled in people is what makes so many like bigoted people hate the people who seem free and open and understanding of who, who yes. they really are, you know, because they kind of resent that in them. They, they probably see a reflection of like their inability, even if they can't like describe it that way, they probably see like that freedom of like, that person's just being whoever they want to be. And I can't be that way. Like, you know, and that translates to hate and anger. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, they also are probably mad that, <clears throat> you know, when people are being who they are, it's taking power away from the people who don't want them to be who they are. Right. And they, like, they obviously want to control a part of society that they disagree with because they don't want to see it. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want it to exist. So the more people stand up and say, actually, this is who I am, and I'm just going to do it, uh, the more it's just going to piss off the people who want that control because it's taking it away from them. Yes, and if it's not obvious, we are 100% on the side of those people that are pissing off the other people. Yes. So keep on <laughs> pissing them off. <laughs> yes. We're generally on the side of anyone pissing off assholes. <laughs> yes. Uh, we're going to get a bumper sticker that says that. Um <laughs> Another thing I wrote that was that um, having a child doesn't make you a good parent or a better person or any easier to handle your addictions or your own demons. The like the struggles that Chiron's mom is going through are you know they get harder and harder and you know like it's easy to just be like to judge her like uh, like Juan does and be like you know you're a shitty mom and you know you should be doing better. It's really easy to do that, but but addiction is hard and, and there's, uh, just, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. I'm sure mental health wise with her that she's dealing with as a person as well. So like seeing her as an individual who has her own problems and not just a mother, you know, that's, that's a hard distinction to make. And, you know, it's, it's hard to justify what she's doing, but it's also, you know, it's hard to be, it's hard to be a person. It's hard to be a human. <laughs> so like, uh, I, I'm, I'm just trying to see the human side of her as well, because it's so much, so easy to just see her as the bad mother character, you know? Yeah. And, uh, Sharon sees the human side of her as well. So I'd like to point out the scene. So there's one scene when he's a teenager, when his mom basically assaults him for money that she is sure that Teresa has given him. And he right. eventually just gives it to her, uh, to make her stop. But a couple scenes later, Sharon comes home and his mom is asleep on the couch. And despite, you know, everything she's ever done to him, 
he still pulls out a blanket and puts the blanket on her. Yeah. And I mean, in that moment, she still takes a moment to try to badmouth Teresa, but that's just, you know, again, seeing that humanity in, in both of them. Yeah. Uh, Sharon didn't even seem like he thought about it. And again, this is part of who he is without realizing it. He's the type of person who's going to do that. Uh, he's really just a sweet kid at, yeah. at the heart of it, the entire movie. You know, he cares about his family, whether that is his mom or, you know, the the, the few people in his life he has. He doesn't have that many people. So, yeah. like, I think he's very protective of the people he does have, regardless of how they may have treated him. And he kind of, I think he kind of sees that she's been struggling all her life as well, you know, even if he does, like, fight back with her sometimes to be like, you know, you are, why are you taking my money? You know, in the scene where he's taking the money, she's taking the money from him or later when they're at the facility and he's like, you know, kind of calling her out on her hypocrisy. Like he pulls himself back and is, you know, says like, I'm going to calm down. I'm going to be the bigger person here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I also, I wrote, I kind of talked about this already, but actions have consequences and, bullied kids turn into kids who see no outlet other than fighting back eventually like eventually they're going to do something and the the fact that we have no good system to deal with this and the system ends up punishing someone because they don't look at the source they looked at the the one action that he hit this kid with a chair which is not right but if you look at the context there's a lot going on that should have been dealt with before that wasn't. And then the system only deals with this one specific action by the, you know, instead of all the times that he got beat up, he hits somebody once. And then all of a sudden he's in jail, which informs the rest of his life, which puts him on the street. You know, the way that we deal with things in childhood have severe consequences later Mm -hmm. in life, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. The hate you give, uh, little infants fucks everyone. Yep, there you go. Yep. Very, very true. Do you remember that from episode two? Yeah, it okay. also makes me want to watch that movie again. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Uh, well, I'll just read it. Uh, whether a father figure, mother figure, or what have you, uh, we all need a little guidance sometimes. It's most important when we're young and learning about life, the world, and ourselves. Someone to talk to and ask about the confusing times. But as we grow, we can always still use more guidance. Uh, again, after Sharon lost the guidance of Juan, he started becoming someone else. Uh, yeah. Juan was the only one trying to tell him that he should just be who he is. And the only one he was really willing to talk to about it. Yeah. I mean, even as adults, uh, everyone needs a little guidance sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why you're listening to this podcast, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I agree. that and, and, and Juan was like the one that was helping him come out of his shell and like come out into the world and he wanted to hide from everything he wanted to hide away from his you know from his bullies from his problems from it from everything from who he was and without Juan there he continued to do that and instead of ever becoming a part of the world he continues to hide from it in one way or another and eventually like Kevin is the next person that actually is like able to lure him back out of his shell after he's been hiding for so long after high school and all of that is even reflected, I think, in, in the uh, the titles uh, of the chapters. Mm. So as a kid, the chapter one is titled Little. Again, not a name he gave himself, uh, but the name other people have given him, who he doesn't really like, but that's who he feels like when he's a kid. Right. Uh, chapter two, Sharon. When he just wants to be Sharon, he wants to figure out who Sharon is, ends up not succeeding. And three, Black, the name even though Kevin gave him, it's the name he now chooses for himself, uh, mm-hmm. for the character he's now playing for for probably the rest of his life. Because we don't know right. what's going to happen after the end of the movie. Very possible yeah. that he just goes back to Atlanta and continues being black. Sure. And maybe every once in a while pays a visit to Miami to, to feel comfort. But, yeah, yeah again, uh, it's the guidance of Juan that takes us from chapter one to chapter two. From Little to Sharon, but it's the the complete lack of guidance other than the drug dealer who puts him on the street that takes us from Sharon to Black. 
Yeah, and then you know, any it's anybody's guess after the end of the movie where mm-hmm. that sweet moment at the end might take him. And, and I mean, we touched on it a little bit because it's not just the lack of guidance; it's all of the systems in place that are terrible towards black people in America. I guess it's a form of guidance, but uh, it's it's help that uh, a lot of people get that black people usually don't from right. from the systems in place in their lives. Uh, and there's definitely a yeah, but besides the systems in place, just like the the need for a specific facade and like the the overlap in the black community and the gay community is us you know a minority within a minority, and it's not as you know, widely accepted anywhere, but it's definitely not as widely accepted in black culture, especially in black men, that they have to continue to put on this face of masculinity, whatever you want to call that. So like choosing to be yourself in that situation is not definitely not easy in any way. Right. And yeah, and that, I mean, that kind of just leads into the, the last lesson I'd written down, was, which was if people can't be themselves, they can't be free. And always having to put up walls or be forced to take, you know, be forced to take the long way home to avoid your bullies can affect your mental health forever. And just to make somebody feel unwelcome in their own skin or in their own town or school or house, like that's just not something we should accept. Yeah. I also put, you know, fear can be a good thing for survival, but sometimes it controls us in ways that it shouldn't, uh, Yeah, which I think ties into what you were just saying. I was speaking totally. specifically about uh, Kevin being too afraid to stand up to the asshole kid and hitting Sharon because of it. I mean, a lot of this movie goes back to being in a place of fear uh, from either not knowing or from knowing and being afraid of what will happen. Fear of everything, though. I mean, fear, literal fear there, fear of... Like, what am I going to do to make rent? Okay, I'm going to follow all the rules and I'm going to stay on you know, my best behavior in parole. Fear of going back to prison, mm-hmm. being arrested for standing up for myself. There's just, you know, it's all fear. It's the fear that governs our actions. It's crazy. Yeah. It's fear all the way down. Yes. <laughs> Sadly, very true. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately. It doesn't really, doesn't really tie into this movie, but just like the fear of of it. like that's that's what we are governed by all the time like i can't lose my job because then i won't be able to pay my rent and then i won't have a house and then i won't be able to buy food so i can't live without this driving fear of constantly being a part of the capitalist machine that allows me to be a human on the world in the world you know yeah. it's it's a crazy cycle that and we then live in. Uh, a good portion of people truly believe that without that fear our country collapses got to keep them afraid Got to keep the, got to keep the meager, hungry for food, or else they'll rise up and just be artists, I guess. <laughs> or or uh, if, so if they socialists. don't, or, or yeah, or, or if they don't have that fear, people just aren't going to work, and our our economy collapses. What would we do without billionaires? <sighs> By local. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's all the lessons that I have. Yeah, that's pretty much all I have too. Yeah, we always like to end on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> Every episode of this podcast is just about, just like Empire Strikes Back. We just end on a the biggest down note we can think of and then tell you where to find us online. Yeah, that's all imitating art is, a series of down endings. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, uh, that was the working title for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't think it would get as uh, as many listeners as we have now. Yeah, we were probably wrong about that. (laughs) (laughs) We might have gotten a few more Kevin Smith fans, who knows? Exactly. If you would like to find us online, (laughs) you can uh, send us an email at imitatingart1 at gmail.com. Anyone who's gotten this far in the episode, send us an email. Just say hello. Say something. Because I don't think anyone sent us an email since like episode nine. Lauren. (laughs) Uh, My mom sent sent us an email uh, back in like January, February that I never mentioned on the podcast. It was about, uh, I want to say single white female, but it's not it. The the one with uh, Carrie Mulligan. Not single white female. Uh, promising Young Woman. Yes. <laughs> See? <laughs> um, close. Anyway, so, yeah, if you made it this far into the episode, send us an email or, you know, just send us a, a tweet or message us on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram at 
uh, Imitating Art Pod and let us know what we should be covering. Tell us what we missed in this episode. Tell us uh, what you liked about this episode. Any any communication is welcome and encouraged. Yeah, I have a feeling that what you liked about this episode will be a shorter message, so that's good. Uh, if you want to reach me individually, it's going to be at Big F and Moose on all the socials, including, I believe, Pinterest. I'm not sure. I was hoping you'd mention that. Um, yes. <laughs> and if you want to find me uh, online, you can follow me on Instagram at Don't Worry, I'm Finite. And you can listen to my other podcast at anchor.fm slash Don't Worry, I'm Finite. Yeah, then so, you get the joke I just made. Yeah, go listen to my newest episode with Sarah Saturday, who was also uh, a guest on this podcast when we did Strangers in Fiction. Um, so a lot of our guests on this on this uh, podcast have also been on mine and we do a little deeper dive into what they're interested in and not just the movie um so go check that out and uh yeah thanks for for sticking with us for this episode it's been actual it It doesn't work when i do it (laughs) see you next tuesday (laughs) yeah Don and Chuck will return in Imitating Art with Don and Chuck.